this is a this is a great passage. I love some of the way some of the times when Paul writes with all these questions, like these staccato rhetorical questions, one after another. And he, he does the, he'll do this later in Corinthians as well. But uh, what's his point? When I was uh, you know working in in HVAC construction, and we worked on these big tilt ups. Down in, down in the valley, pour the concrete walls and tilt them up and then put the lid on. We were in there pretty early on laying out all the HVAC stuff. You know, we had a crew of, I don't know, 10 guys or so. So there's always a foreman you know, on your crew, someone that's kind of in charge of the crew. And I worked, one of the foremen I worked with uh, was a guy that I just, I really loved working with this guy. A guy I had a ton of respect for. And all the other guys on the crew had a lot of respect for this foreman because. He, was, he wasn't the type of foreman that would be on the job and then find a job, you know, find one of the tasks that was just, like, horrible and he didn't want to do it, so he would find someone to do it for him. Uh, he, was a, he was a guy that we all knew through experience of working with him that he would do any level of job that we had to do. He would, he would take on any task. So when he told us to do something, it wasn't, we knew he wasn't just saying, you guys do that, I'm too good for it, you know? And he, he had a lot of respect because of that amongst, amongst our crew. And we did some some bad jobs together. <laughs> uh, we also did homes a little bit, you know, like the residential homes, which are horrible compared to working in a huge building that's just spacious and you're just walking around. Because homes have this thing called a crawl space. And uh, that's like euphemism in a lot of ways, but it's like a belly crawl space a lot, a lot of times. We put in, a, we put in a, a, a new system in this guy's house, but we had to cut through the concrete foundation wall like it's an eight inch thick piece of concrete with rebar in it and so it's not easy to cut through. so you got to dig a hole down to get through it and then to cut through a, a wall that thick you need like a demo saw which is a big gas powered water spring like saw that's really heavy or a jackhammer and so Mick and I this this foreman he, he jumped right in the hole with me and we're gonna cut through this foundation wall so I'm holding the jackhammer like this so that he can hold it horizontally and like push through the wall. Man, it was bad. But it was like, he was that kind of guy that would just like get down in the trenches with us and do the work. So the question arises in my mind, why should a leader practice what they preach? Why does experiential knowledge impact us and last longer than Why does Paul use rhetorical questions throughout this passage? What is my point? It's to ask the question, what is Paul's point? So I have a three-pointer today. My first point is authority, or do you know who I am? My second point is, no, I'm saying, common sense and revelation. And my third point is for the love of the game, or reward. So my first point, do you know who I am? That question, you know, when someone cuts in front of you in line in Burger King, you're like, do you know who I am? So Paul starts his argument for these people by saying, like, here's who I am, okay? Am I not as free as anyone else? He, he starts in with these questions because he's, he's not just telling them who he is, he's reminding them of who, he, who they know him to be. Am I not an apostle? Haven't I seen Jesus? 
isn't it because of my work that you belong to the Lord? So he asked these questions that really only have one answer and really are reminders to these people who he, who he has worked amongst. I love this process of teaching because it, it helps us to learn. Oftentimes learning is a process of discovery where you, you, you get a thought and then you sort of arrive at this thought and then you own it. Versus just being told, hey, Paul's an authority in their life. He's not just telling them. He's reminding them of their experience. He's reminding them of who he is by asking them these questions, which they then have to kind of engage their mind a little bit and say, oh, yeah, I remember who Paul is. I remember how he lived among us. I think this is a great way to teach and, and to learn. And throughout this chapter, Paul is trying to make clear God's plan concerning the support of those called to preaching and teaching in the church. And if you're going to make a strong case for someone, if you were going to make a strong case for someone, to change their lifestyle or to make corrections, where would you start? So Paul starts with himself. Like, why should you be able to tell us? Why should we listen to you, Paul? He reminds them through obvious questions designed to buttress his case what his point is. So Paul's question, questions point to who he is, his calling, his eyewitness relationship to Jesus. And he, he's reminding the Corinthians why he's allowed to teach them, why he's even writing him this letter. And he's admonishing them to walk in line with the gospel. And in so doing, he gives us sort of a glimpse into why we even read this book, the scripture. Because throughout history, we've, the scripture has been around, and we, we've recognized throughout history the scripture in this process that we call canon. And some of the guidelines that we've used to discover to understand which writings are scripture and which are not is whether or not they were written by an apostle big a apostle or the 12 there's a group that i think maybe you're familiar with jesus had 12 disciples they became apostles this term for those who have sent and there were 12 of these apostles big a there were other apostles who were sent out that were little a but these guys there was no other apostles so in when we're recognizing what is scripture and what is not one of the criteria that was used if there is such a thing was was it written by an apostle or one of their close associates and so paul is sort of helping us understand even why we're listening to his to his writing it's interesting so what makes something the word of god it's an interesting question that's not the point today but it just gives us a glimpse into this this understanding of scripture and even later on in in our collection of letters that we call the New Testament, Peter, the apostle, is writing to a church, and he tells them, be careful about these teachers who are distorting some of the things that Paul wrote as they distort other scriptures. So Peter refers to Paul's writing as scripture early, early on. It wasn't voted on by Constantine and Dan Brown. So it's interesting to see how, how scripture comes about. It seems some are questioning Paul's authority because in this last statement, this is what I have to say to those who are questioning whether or not I'm an apostle or questioning my authority. And it, it would have been easy to do because as we've, as we've seen in this study, Paul didn't play their game. He didn't jump into the right strata of society for, for what he was doing. He was, he was a, a weird person to them because... Here he was, well-versed in rhetoric and able to communicate, and he had this powerful message, and yet he was making tents. 
he was working with his hands as a sort of a lower caste person and the, the, the rhetoric guys of his day should have been sort of living on their rhetoric and kind of living it up and, and in, in this right level of society and Paul's just kind of bucking their system and yet he's proclaiming this message that's capturing it's, it's really cool so Paul is reminding them am I free these questions and, and it's, it's just yes 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 you know like it's not really up for debate in, in the, when he does this kind of stuff. Later on, he asks questions that the answer is no to. But right now, he's saying, am I, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus? And even if some people question whether or not I'm an apostle, of course I'm an apostle to you because you're proof of it. <laughs> I brought the gospel to you. Remember? <laughs> Remember when I told you about Jesus and you're like, I believe. So to those who question my authority, you already know. That's his answer. So, in his first point in this argument, he's, he's saying, I'm an authority. So, the question for us is, who do you listen to? Who are the, your authorities? Why, why, do you, why do you give them authority? What's the relationship between rights and authority? There's a word throughout these passages, right. I have the right. Paul says, don't I have the right to stay in your house? Don't I have the right? eat meals don't have the right to receive support like the other guys and the in the in the greek this the same word sort of gets translated sometimes as right sometimes as authority it's interesting to think about the idea of rights we're we're really big on that in our in our society built rights that really a right is an authority that you have based on some set of laws or whatever structure you have you have the right to do something. You have the authority to do And Paul is continuing his argument for the laying down of rights, for giving up your rights for the sake of other people. This is the argument from last week that he began. He said, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. You shouldn't use your knowledge to lord it over people. You shouldn't use your knowledge to put your brothers and sisters in a tough place. You should lay down your rights, even though you know better to accommodate those who are weaker in the faith. And he's continuing this very argument through this passage. Now he begins to build on, the, on this argument with more questions. He begins to ask about the way God designed the role of preachers and teachers in his kingdom. And it breaks down into sort of three parts. Part one, revelation or common sense. Part two, uh, special revelation or scripture and theology. And part three, uh, that I'm calling for the love of the game. So part one was authority, who I am. Now part two is nam saying. So that's a, that's a term that you might have heard or you might even use. Nam saying. Right? It began with, do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know what I'm saying? Know what I'm saying? Nam saying. Okay? I've been teaching my daughters this, this vocabulary. So when I said point two, I saw, I saw Sophia smile. I would talk to Sophie and say, hey, Sophie, you know what I'm saying? She'd be like, what? You know what I'm saying? And then I would, I would, I would help her say, come on, say it. You know what I'm saying? All right, we got it. So point two is common sense or revelation. Where to start? So he starts his argument with this sort of common sense. You guys, isn't it, don't we have the right to stay in your house and eat your meals? Don't we have the right to receive support as these other you pay other people to do this kind of stuff what don't we have that right 
and he's beginning to make, clearly and simply make a very strong case that those like himself who go out to proclaim the, the word of God have the right to receive payment for that. And he builds up to, to the last point here that I'll get to. But he starts out with sort of this common sense, things that they already know. What soldier pays his own expense? What farmer plants a vineyard and doesn't have the right to eat some of its fruit? What shepherd cares for the flock of sheep and isn't allowed to drink some of the milk? Don't we have the right? This, this form of argument is, is interesting because, in a, in a way, this is how God designed his invitation to us. It's a general revelation of who he is in nature and in common sense that invites us to a special revelation of who he is in Scripture. So the other thing is that this is the second time in Scripture that Peter's wife So it's obvious here that Peter was traveling around with his wife. And maybe that doesn't matter to you, but maybe it does because it's clear that the first leader of the church, Universal, was married. And he had a wife. And he traveled around with them. So Paul reminds them of the others that, that they've welcomed into their homes and supported and asked, are Barnabas and I the only ones? Are we different somehow? Are we the only ones that don't have these rights? Is it only to us? Is it only for us to, to work and support ourselves? And obviously the answer to all these questions is no. And then, and then he, he just kind of asks them about their own experience. Soldiers, farmers, shepherds, vineyards. You guys, you know how the world works. This is, God designed that. And that helps us understand who God is. God's clearly seen through what has been made. Romans teaches us. So then he, he moves on from this sort of common sense to Scripture. He says, am I expressing merely a human opinion in verse 8? Or does the law say the same thing? For the law of Moses says, don't muzzle an ox keep from eating while it treads out the grain. Was God thinking only about oxen when he said this? Wasn't he actually speaking to us? Yes, it's written for us so that the one who plows and the one who threshes grain might both expect the share of a harvest. Since we planted spiritual seed among you, aren't you entitled to a harvest of physical food and drink? Aren't we entitled if you support others who preach you, shouldn't we have an even greater right? But we've never used this right. Would we rather put we would rather put up with anything than be an obstacle to the good news about Christ? The picture there is to put something across the pathway to the good news about Christ. I like that. To trip you up. Don't you realize that those who work in the temple get their meals from the offerings that are brought to the temple? So he go he goes into scripture and makes his case. He says, the Lord ordered that those who preach the good news should be supported by those who benefit from it. And it's just a very simple statement. The, in the English, we have to add kind of some words to understand the sentence. And, the, and in its simplest form, I, you know, English-wise, it, it says, God directed that those who proclaim the gospel live by the gospel. So what is God's design then? Paul lays, Paul lays out this paradigm. Those who proclaim the gospel should be supported to do that. That's God's design. And this is where I need to just expand a little bit beyond the scope of this text. Because whenever you're, you're preaching through something, I just I felt like I just needed to add, not to the scripture, but add to our understanding of what Paul is talking about. Because he's, he's obviously assuming a lot about what they understand. And he's speaking to their culture in a way 
in a very specific way, and, and this whole passage is helping us understand what he's doing. And so to our culture as well, our idol is money. I, I don't think anybody would really deny that. Materialism is our religion. Our, our idol is money. The, the, the temples of our idolatry are the malls, at least when people used to go to them. Now it's virtually a uh, virtual mall of, of Amazon or whoever else. But uh, so when, 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 when I get to this passage and I start to think about giving and, and understanding that, conversations run through my mind, even when I had it in the last couple of weeks, considering, concerning like sort of an ignorance or a misunderstanding about, about what the Bible says about giving. And I'm not going to do a whole teaching on giving, but I just want to talk about God's design, what, like why, how God designed it this way and what it means. And I just want to start with uh, something Paul doesn't mention at all, except when we think about giving, what's the first word that comes to your mind when you think about giving to the church? There it is. Okay, so that just jumps out at you, doesn't it? Like, I don't even have to make the case. Like, this weird word, tithe, jumps out at us. What is this idea? It, it means a tenth, right? A tenth. So there's a, there was a tenth that was required of God's people when he organized his, his Old Testament uh, when he organized the people in the Old Testament underneath Moses, the civil law that he gave. This tenth is interesting because some people say, well, I tithe. You can't, you can't tenth 2%. You can't tenth 15%. Tenth is a tenth is a tenth. It's tenth. That's what it means, right? A tithe. In Numbers 18.21, the scripture says, As for the tribe of Levi... Your relatives, I will compensate them for their services in the tabernacle. Instead of an allotment of land, I will give them the tithes from the entire land of Israel. So God is, God's design from the very beginning was that there were, there were people who were marked out to be supported to do his work. And these, in this part, they were called the Levites. The Levites. The Levites. And maybe they invented Levites. I'm not sure. A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. So this tithe was more than just giving. This tithe was a tax on God's people in the way that God designed his early, his early uh, society. We see that in Malachi 3.8. Malachi is a prophet writing to his people. And he says, when you don't bring in the tithe, you're robbing God. So it's not, it's not just voluntary giving necessarily. And it, even though it means a tenth, I want to read this quote to you. Actually, this is from Randy Alcorn, a book. It says, actually, there was not just one tenth for the Israelites, but three. One tithe supported the priests and Levites. Another provided for the sacred, sacred festivals. And the third tithe supported orphans, widows, and the poor. The Levite and festival tithes were perpetual tithes, but the tithe for the poor was collected only every third year so when you figure out all the math, this amounted to an average of 23%, 23% per year. But because Israel was a nation as well as a spiritual community, some of these funds would equate to taxes as we pay today. However, the first and most basic tithe was for religious purposes, specifically to support the spiritual leaders, freeing them to fulfill God's calling and providing the resources necessary to do their job. So even when we talk about the tenth, if, if you were going to say, well, I, I give a tenth because that's what the Bible teaches. Well, it teaches three tenths, like throughout the year, and one every third year. So it's 23 to 27% of your overall income from the year. So if you want to, like, use a legalistic 
sort of metrics of how I'm giving, this is, this is the requirement that I'm meeting. You're not, unless you're doing like 23%, and then every third year, you know, another 10th. It's just confusing, and it's not ever intended to be a legalistic matter for us. God, we, move, we move on in, in God's progressive revelation of who He is in Christ to, to a deeper understanding of what it means to give. But even in the Old Testament, there was the, the tenth that happened multiple times. But there was voluntary giving as well. The people brought gifts and offerings to God over and above these tenths that were given every year. So we see in uh, Exodus 36, Moses gave them materials donated by the people of Israel as sacred offerings for the completion of the sanctuary. But the people continued to bring additional gifts each morning. And finally, the craftsmen who were working on the sanctuary left their work. And they went to Moses and said, The people have given more than enough materials to, comp- to complete the job the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave the command, and this message was sent throughout the camp. Men and women, don't prepare any more gifts for the sanctuary. We have enough. So the people stopped bringing their sacred gift offerings, and the contributions were more than enough to complete the whole project. That'll be an awesome day when we make that announcement. Everyone, we have more than enough. In the church, those who have been purchased by Christ's blood, the motivation is to give, to give is the love that Christ gives us. Jesus redeems people, pouring out his love in our hearts, and he's still about this work today. This, this love delivers us from the love of money as we understand we cannot serve two masters. Giving becomes a declaration of independence from the idolatry of money and materialism. And it's an act of love. 2 Corinthians, the second letter Paul, maybe the second letter that Paul writes to these people, he, he expounds on this and he says in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 7, since you excel in so many ways in your faith your gifted speakers, your knowledge, your enthusiasm, your love from us. I want you to excel also in this gracious act of giving. I'm not commanding you to do this, but I'm testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of other churches. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. Our motivation is the gospel which is a demonstration of the love of Christ. The method is grace-empowered planning and cheerful giving, not guilt or pressure. Paul continues in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 and following. Remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give, and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. For God loves a person who gives cheerfully, and God will generously provide all that you need, and then you will have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. It's really important. Don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure. But God loves a cheerful giver. There are many implications to this whole to this whole section, but the reality that I want to highlight is this. A tenth was never a goal or a legalistic standard, even when it was part of the law. It was multiple tenths. A tenth is a good starting place to learn how to walk in generosity. If you don't know how to give to God or where to start, a tenth might be a good place to start. A tenth is never the goal. Look, I gave a tenth to God, now I'm done with that. 
God's design for, is, is for supporting the workers in the church, and it involves planning. It says, decide in your heart what to do. And we know that in the scriptures, the heart means the mind, will, and emotion. It's all, all of it working together. Not just like if you have a warm feeling, put some money in the basket. <laughs> no, it's go home and look at your budget and understand how much you can give. How can you even give graciously or sacrificially if you don't even know that you can So this is God's design. Paul's laying out this case, and I wanted to make it clear to us like how this case comes into our reality. And God is confident that the love of Christ is sufficient to create cheerful giving. God is not concerned. God doesn't need anyone's money. God doesn't need our support to keep heaven running. <laughs> God needs to free our hearts of the idolatry of money because he knows it will never be enough for us. Only He can be enough for us. So in the same way, we see people helping build the tabernacle, being turned away as they joyfully brought their gifts to God. So back to the question. Is your giving motivated by Christ's love? And have you decided in your heart what to give? Is that part of your faith? Is it part of your spiritual practice? So point three. Now we'll, let's jump back into Paul's argument. He makes this clear case. Those who are sent out for the sake of the gospel have the right. God designed it so that they would be supported by the gospel. Those who preach the gospel live by the gospel. Say it most simply. And he makes, this, he makes this case through all these questions, through common sense, through the scripture, to make like a bulletproof case for this. Now point three is for the love of the game or reward. So after laying out this case, that they have the right to be supported by the church. Paul springs his point on them, which connects us back to last week. And this is the point of this passage. Paul was encouraging them last week. If you, if you weren't here, I'll, I'll remind you. Paul was encouraging them that some of the things they were doing in their culture were not healthy things for people who were younger in the faith in their same church, for their younger brothers and sisters. They were causing them to stumble or sin or be defiled great word and he said you can lay down your right to do those things even though you know so much because of the love that needs to accompany your knowledge you need to do you need to apply your knowledge with love for the whole church and, and help support these these people and he was he was asking them to do things which probably might affect even their livelihood or their social status which was very important for him. that was their culture i want to be here and this is my patron and this is who I'm associated with this is my teacher and this is my level it, it was all very important to them so this, some of the things that the gospel is asking them to do would actually maybe affect the way that they were living in their society it would actually make, bring them down a little bit and so now Paul's point is very is poignant he says in 1 Corinthians 9 after making this case we have the right to receive support and then he says I've never used this right and just flips it. Okay, it's, it's clear as crystal when you read all the questions. Yep, yep, farmers, soldiers, shepherds, Peter, blah, blah, blah. Yep, that's all. Yep, we get it. You have the right. And now you're not using it. This is interesting. Am I not writing? To, and and it, he makes it clear. I've never used any of these rights. And I'm not writing this to start now. Okay? Don't mistake what I'm saying. This is not, as Chris Milheiser would say, Chris Milheiser would say, uh, what does he call it? A giving 
tool or whatever he calls that. Like, he's not here to be a big But the envelopes that he used for giving, he calls them like giving mechanisms or something. It's really funny. And uh, so Paul's saying, look, I'm not, I'm not, this is not a support letter. Just to make it clear, I haven't used these rights on purpose. In fact, I would rather die than lose my right to boast about preaching without charge. Yet preaching the good news is not something I can boast about. I'm compelled by God to do it. How terrible for me if I didn't preach the good news. But if I were doing this on my own initiative, I would deserve payment. But I have no choice, for God has given me this sacred trust. That's kind of a weird way to say it. He's given me this stewardship. I like that. Better. What then is my pay? What is, is it the opportunity? I'm sorry. What then is my pay? That's the question. Why am I not exercising these rights? So let me, let me make it clear before, before I answer that question. What Paul's not saying at this point, Paul's not saying that he didn't receive support for preaching the gospel while he was in court. And in fact, we know that he did receive support for preaching the gospel from the Philippian church because he writes to the Philippians and thanks them for the support that he gave them. And then in 2 Corinthians, he tells the Corinthians, I robbed other churches while I was preaching to you. So we do know that Paul was receiving support, but very specifically, Paul understood the Corinthian culture, and he didn't want to put him. He didn't want to put the. He didn't want to make the gospel unclear to them, because as soon as they began supporting him in their culture, that meant they sort of had a right to like influence him and kind of tell him what to do. Maybe even influence the message, or maybe even feel like he was sort of their their man now, their employee, or or they could do. Kind of, they could kind of take what they wanted from him or, or maybe tell him to tone it down or control what he was preaching. And so Paul very astutely decides while he's in Corinth, I'm not going to put this stumbling block in your way of the gospel. I'm, I'm here and I know nothing except Christ and him crucified. Except Paul knew a whole lot more than that. He just wasn't letting on. That's why he didn't receive any money from them. Because he knew how their society worked. But at the same time, he was receiving money for, for preaching the gospel from the Philippian church. So what he's not saying, what he's not doing is condemning Peter and these other people who are receiving support from the Corinthians. He's not saying, I'm better than them because I didn't receive support. Hey. No. He's saying, I didn't want to put a stumbling block in your way. Why didn't I exercise my rights? But what he's really saying here, if you, if you think about the argument from, from last week till now, he's saying, I practice what I preach, guys. Look, I ask you to lay down your rights for the sake of your brothers and sisters. I'm doing no less. In fact, I might be doing even more because I have the right to be fully supported by you and yet I'm working with my hands every day so that I can preach the gospel for free. I laid down my right to receive support from you. It's no less than what I've, what I've asked you to do. So Paul practices what he preaches. It's really cool. So what's his reward? My last point, I entitled it, For the Love of the Game. <coughs> Paul says, what is my reward? In verse uh, 18. What then is my pay, my reward? It's the opportunity to preach the good news without charging anyone. That's why I never demand my rights when I preach the good news. <coughs> so if Paul's motivation is not money, then what is it? Money muddied everything for these guys. Money muddied things for the Corinthians. So he kept it out of the picture and just brought the clear gospel. The love of Christ compels him. He says, if I don't preach, 
Woe is me. I'm compelled by God to preach this gospel. In, in 2 Corinthians, he says, either way, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 14, the love of Christ controls us since we believe that Christ died for all. We also believe that we have all died to our old life. He, he talks about this idea of being compelled, propelled, like controlled by the love of Christ. That's how he can preach the gospel without asking, without taking advantage of his right to receive support. Because it's the love of Christ that compels him, regardless of what happens. He has a stewardship. He says, God's given me this stewardship. Paul actually sees the gospel as something very valuable. This message, this incredible good news that the God who created you is not counting your sins against you in Christ. And you can receive the gift of eternal life by faith. That God's grace has been poured out in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. And he's willing to offer his perfect life in our place. And take our imperfect life on himself. And make us the beloved. Make us children of God. By faith. That's such an incredible message. Paul sees it as a valuable thing. Like, I've been given this stewardship. I have to, let, I have to send, get this word out. That's, the, that's what you do with a message like this. <clears throat> it's not something that you just sit on. It's such good news. It's what people are wondering about and asking about. And Hebrews says people are slaves to the fear of death. And we can say, you don't have to die. You can be set free from the fear of death because death has been conquered in Jesus Christ on the cross. He has a stewardship of this great message. He can't keep it to himself. And then in verse 18, he says, I do it for the love of the game. He said, what is my pay? It is the opportunity to preach the good news without charging anyone. That's why I never demand my rights. So the the question, another question. What is the thing that you're willing to sacrifice for? To give your time, your money, your effort, just because you love it. Just because of doing that thing, of engaging in that thing, is worth all the expenditure. It's worth the effort. It's worth the time. This is what Paul is saying about the gospel. It's about preaching the gospel. This is what it's like for him. It's like, and maybe you've experienced this like as, a, as an artist or as a singer or as a musician or as a worker. You're engaged in a job. You're, you're making something or you're doing something. And just doing that, just building that. Like for me, like drawing sometimes. When I'm drawing and then it begins to come together and like the shading on the upper lip really comes together after like three hours. It just like makes you so happy you're like, oh, it just pops out of the page, and you're like, whoa, this is so cool. Just engaging in that is the reward in and of itself. Like if you could play, you know, Rachmaninoff or like some kind of masterful piano player, and you just play these whatever piano songs are called, you know, like Peter could probably tell me. Like you just like, you know, bing, bing with your foot. Like it's just the joy. It's the joy that comes in being able to do this thing and express it. This is what Paul is saying. That's my reward. I get to proclaim this good news of the gospel. And the last thing he says is in verse 19. I do it for the love of the game. And even though I'm free, verse 19, even though I'm a free man with no master, I've, made my, I've, I've become a slave to all people to bring many to Christ. 
Why do I do this for free? So that it's clear as crystal, so that nobody is excluded, so that nobody is tripped up, so that nobody is distracted, so that as many people as possible can come to Christ. In Colossians, when Paul's writing in Colossians, at the very end of the first chapter of Colossians, he's sort of like just sharing his heart about what he thinks about the gospel. And he, he, he says, I wish I could see every single person face to face, every person on the earth, and tell them this good news. That's, that's how much Paul loved proclaiming this gospel message. So this whole passage, Paul saying, is to summarize, is Paul saying, look, I practice what I preach. Guys, I'm asking you to lay down your rights. I'm asking you to give of yourselves for your weaker brothers and sisters. I'm doing no less. I'm doing the same thing. He points us to Jesus. In this. Jesus practiced what he, what he preached. Forgiving even those who were nailing him to the cross as he laid down his life for sinners. Jesus has given everything for us to fill us with his love. Not for money or fame or any other motive than his grace poured out in love. To transform a people who into a, li- into a living demonstration of his love. So that these people would spread the good news of the gospel in word and in deed. So do you know the love of Christ? That's the question. Heavenly Father, thank you for this good news of the gospel. I thank you for somebody like Paul who who can be an example to us of the excitement that your love can bring, of the excitement of the good news and the announcement of it. Lord, would you increase our capacity and our ability and our boldness to proclaim this good news? Would you help us to be as shrewd as Paul was to understand our culture and how to proclaim this good news with clarity and not be distracted by all the cultural things that want to distract us or or cloud this message? Lord, would you give us opportunities to proclaim your good news? Would you give us open doors? And when we get these opportunities, Lord, Holy Spirit, Take over and give us the words to speak. Give us clarity. Help us to proclaim this good news, Lord, as it's affected our hearts, Lord. And and for all of us here, I pray, Lord Jesus, that we would know you more. Lord Jesus, for those who don't yet know you this morning, I pray that you would show up, that you would speak to their hearts, that you would bring salvation in this place. For those of us who have been following you, Lord, but are distracted, by this culture or have been caught up in in the idolatries that surround us, Lord, would you clear those things away? Would you bring sanctification, Lord, again? Help us to trust in you, Lord. Strengthen our faith that we would grow in our ability to follow you, Lord Jesus. Amen.